Well, that clip was from the uh, 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger, which has been by far one of my favorite contributions to the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. For those unfamiliar, Captain America is the story of a short, scrawny young man named Steve Rogers who's been rejected for military service during World War II due to his small stature and poor health. And after repeated attempts at falsifying his records in order to be accepted to serve, he finally gets this chance after meeting a scientist who sees something in Rogers that others hadn't seen. When he's sitting in this interview with the scientist, Dr. Erskine, the Stanley Tucci guy, the, the doctor asks him if he wants to kill Nazis. And Rogers responds that, he says, I don't want to kill anyone, but I don't like bullies. Erskine looks through his records and discovers that even though um, he had an excuse to stay out of the war, Rogers had repeatedly attempted to find ways to serve his country. Rogers is given an opportunity to try out for this new program that this scientist is developing, one that would create a new breed of super soldier. And as the clip showed, Rogers is mocked because of his statue, but in time he's praised for his character. Ultimately, he's chosen for the program, and after being injected with super soldier serum, he becomes Captain America. And Captain America is one of my favorite characters of all time because he is idealist to a fault, and he is devoid of ego and cynicism. He knows, he sees others how they could be. He sees others how they should be and calls out the best in them with his leadership. His strength is relatively weaker than others on the team like the Hulk and Thor, but his character and his sense of duty is as strong or in many ways much stronger than any of the others In the seven movies in which he's featured, he fearlessly and sacrificially stands up to bullies, most of whom are much more powerful than himself, simply because he knows that it's the right thing to do. This morning, we're returning to our series, Surrender, that we began earlier this year. Earlier this year, we began the, the year considering these big picture topics of power, sex, and money. Uh, And in the second part, we're going to kind of come down and look at the trees a little bit. We're going to look at a number of topics that are a bit closer to the ground. And we'll begin today with the topic of fear. Second Timothy, Paul is speaking to his protege and he says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of love, of power and love and self-control. The thing to remember about fear right from the start is that God is the source of our courage. The thing to remember right from the start is that God is the source of our strength. I, I mean, what would it mean for your life if you knew in a, any given moment that you were in the immediate presence of God? How would it affect your fear if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was with you, beside you, advocating for you? Would it be Uh, Would you be more likely to be honest with others? Would you be more likely to say the difficult things that you needed to say? Would you view pain differently? Would you view loss differently? How would your perspective on life change if you knew that God was on your side? Would courage become a more attainable reality? During his years of imprisonment and struggle against oppression, the South African dissident 
Nelson Mandela said, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. I felt fear more times than I could remember, but I hid it behind a mask of boldness. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Now, that attitude might seem more attainable to people like Nelson Mandela and Captain America, but how about the rest of us? How do the rest of us conquer fear in the face of a relentless pounding that evil unleashes on our culture on a daily basis? What does it look like for a Christian to boldly triumph over fear in the way that Nelson Mandela described? A few years ago, our, our, our men's retreat, we had an opportunity uh, to do uh, a zip line, uh, and we were at uh, Rockbridge Alum Springs in Goshen, Virginia. And, and we climbed this big hill, and we made our way to this high spot in the middle of the woods that overlooked this long clearing that eventually, in the way far, far distance, like, like what had to have been like 30 miles away, um, the lake was in the far distance. And the zip line actually ended in water. But from where the place you set out from, the water, like it looked to be in a different time zone, and it looked like it was a very long way down. And it takes the crew kind of a few minutes to kind of get you all strapped in and appropriately as you sit on the edge of this tree house, waiting for them to just push you onto the zip line. And I remember the staff member, you know, tightening my straps and helping me with my helmet, and he's, he, are you nervous? Now, I'm not sure what they typically hear. Maybe they'll, they're used to people saying, ah, I do this all the time. Or maybe others say, ah, I'm fine, I've done much longer zip lines before, but not me. I looked right at this guy and I said, yeah, and why not? I had a good reason to be nervous. It was like a hundred foot drop into thick woods and rocks below me, and I was trusting my safety to a guy who looked like he'd barely graduated middle school. You're darn right, I was nervous. 309 homicides in our city last year. Increase of hate crime and other despicable acts at alarming rates. It seems every time we turn on the news, we see another story of violence in our streets or in our schools and corruption in our government. It's not just me that I'm fearful for. I have a wife. I have two sons just as each of you have loved ones for whom you desire protection and prosperity. And some might shrug the realities of our age off and say, that's fine, I'm, fine. I'm not just fine. Maybe you like to keep your head down. But if I ask you, are you nervous? I wouldn't blame you if you said yes. This fall, we're going to spend time working our way through the Sermon on the Mount which Jason Poling often called Jesus' stump speech. In seminary, my New, Hope, uh, my New Testament professor, he described the Sermon on the Mount as a whole new way of being human. In fact, we might call the series that, a whole new way of being human. But in it, Jesus instructs us that we aren't to be anxious about our lives because our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we even do. And as I said before, God is the source of our strength and our courage. If God truly is who we believe he is, it would make sense for us to trust that he holds our lives in his very capable hands. But you know, if I'm being honest, 
I got to say that the knowledge, just a head knowledge that God holds the whole world in his hands didn't really make me less nervous sitting there on the edge waiting to be released onto that zip line. And I got to say that knowledge, head knowledge of God's sovereignty doesn't erase the fear that I have of raising two children in this world of 2019. I believe that being honest with my fear is the first step at conquering it. I think that sometimes we like to ignore our fears, we like to pretend they don't exist, as we just keep our head down and get through the day. The problem is that is that when we don't acknowledge our fears, they have a way of dictating parts of our lives in ways that we didn't anticipate or expect. And we have a name for when things other than God dictate parts of our life. Idolatry. Sometimes I think Christians can be so committed to living fearless lives that they stubbornly fail to confess the fears that are affecting their choices. And friends, that's not seeking first God's kingdom. I'm not asking you to ignore your fears. I'm asking you to surrender them to God. Confess them to your Father who will remind you that He knows how your story ends. Speaking of stories, I'd, I'd like us to have a look today at the story found, a story found in the book of Judges. New Hope has a rich tradition of preaching in the book of Judges. I'm sure it's one of your favorites. Lots of life verses in there. As Brian mentioned last week, the book of Judges, it pra- plays like a broken record. It continues this cycle of sin uh, leading to servitude and oppression, leading to repentance leading to redemption and deliverance, and then ultimately jubilation, and then right back down to sin. And there's this repeated refrain throughout the book of Judges that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again and again and again. And the book doesn't resolve. It ends with these words. It ends with the words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did which, what was right in his own eye. Of course, even kings like David wouldn't be able to lead Israel to be what it was originally called to be. It would take a much more powerful king to pull that off. But that's a story for a different day. Today, we'll look at the story of Gideon, the fifth in the line of judges that God used as heroes or leaders during this time period. So if you will, please turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, a neighboring tribe, for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves uh, the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they would come against them. They would encamp against them and they would devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land and came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. You see, Israel was in this land in the first place because God had led them there. There was something deep in their identity that connected God's faithful provision to this land where they built their community. If you remember, Israel had been fed by manna from heaven during the years wandering in the wilderness. And now that they are in the promised land, they move to this agricultural society, one that plants and harvests. And in the ancient world where there was no Wegmans that they could go to if the harvest wasn't plentiful enough. Their lives depended on that harvest for their source of sustenance. And now this neighboring tribe of Midian swarmed like locusts on their land and devoured their food. And it's important that we see the nuance of how fear affected the society. It's true that the original reasons why the Midianites were oppressing the people of Israel was because they forgot who God was, and stopped treating him that way. And so we see this refrain of God essentially giving Israel what they want. And the lesson of the book of Judges is God saying, here you go, you asked for it, you got it. You want to know what life is like without me? Here's a taste. And then typically in Judges, again and again, the people finally turn to God for help. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites who live in the land you dwell. That's what I said. But you have not obeyed my voice. God's saying, let's review our history here. You're not here because of sheer coincidence or your own cunning. The only reason you're in this land in the first place is because I guided you here out of the bondage of slavery and into this land of promise. All I'm asking is that you remember your history. I've talked many times about how God showed up in my own story. My parents separated when I was in middle school, and my mother, who was pregnant at the time, um, uh, was suddenly a single mother of three children, one of who was a newborn baby. And we weren't a family of means. And I watched for years as my mother worked tirelessly, tirelessly to play the role of two parents, providing for her three children. Fearlessly, she sacrificially gave herself for her kids. And I watched how friends and family over, those period, over that period of time kind of came around us, showing me what community truly looks like. It was my first thought of like, my first image of what the church could be. 
On one hand, I can look back at that time and remember severe darkness, but more importantly, I can look back and vividly remember God's faithfulness, how he brought people into our lives at just the right time to show us how much he loved us. And it was also during that time that the gospel was made real to me. The truth is that the absence of my earthly father was the thing that God used to awaken me to the love of my heavenly father. Sitting there as a seventh grader, hearing about God's love for a broken world, I I didn't need convincing of God's faithfulness because I'd been experiencing the gospel in my life. You see, sin causes pain and creates divisions amongst people, and God seeks to repair that pain through his love, often at the hands of of others he brings into our lives. All the church did was give me words to what I'd been experiencing for the past two years. I remembered what God had done in my life and in the life of my family, and when subsequent seasons of pain came about, I was able to surrender my fear to God because I had experienced his providence in powerful ways during the years of my youth. Even though the pain of those latter years uh, was still very real, the times that tripped up, that I, times that I tripped up and gave in to fear was the times that I forgot that God had used a mighty hand of faithfulness. And then I failed to live into the purpose of my deliverance in the first place. Remember the key phrase we often say um, anytime we're talking about Israel is that Israel was called blessed to be a blessing. Israel was blessed not to the exclusion of others, but rather for the benefit of others. And in the same way, I was not merely saved. I was not saved merely so that I could um, get my afterlife in order. I was saved in order that I might be a blessing to others by living into my life's purpose fearlessly. You see, that's what fear does, though. It, it, it prevents us from being that blessing. It either cripples us in order that we don't move at all, or it redirects our efforts towards something other than God's kingdom. Fear keeps you from being the person that God created you to be, because you end up making choices based on fear and not on God's covenant faithfulness. And that doesn't just hurt you, it prevents you from being a blessing to others. It hurts others. Because here's the thing, one day, one day God might ask you to jump on the grenade. I certainly hope not literally. But knowing how our God works, I do think it is a safe bet that he will ask you to make the sacrificial play. To put your life, or maybe just your comfort, on the line for the benefit of another. The question is this, will you respond to that call from a place of fear? Will you react in fear or will you respond in faith? And God calls this one particular person to do something amazing for him. Picking up in verse 11. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abarazite while his son Gideon was beating out wheat on the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So if you're going to beat out wheat, you probably would want to do it in like an open area, preferably on a hill so that the wind could carry away the chaff in the winnowing process. And Gideon, though, is beating out wheat 
in a wine press, which is kind of like a circular pit carved into rock. And the wine press was safe. Uh, the wine press was secure. The wine press was private. So it was a horrible place to beat out wheat. Gideon, though, was desperate to keep his activity a secret from the Midianites. And so he's using this dungeon of fear to do it. Continuing on in chapter, uh, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, picture Gideon, petrified with fear that the Midianites might find him, and then suddenly being in the presence of a heavenly being. And just about every time an angel appears in Scripture or some sort of heavenly being, the first thing that they have to say to this person is, don't be afraid. And now here's this angel of the Lord showing up in Gideon's dungeon of fear and announcing suddenly, the Lord is with you. Gideon must have been scared out of his mind. And he's hunching there on the floor with his arms over his head and his little, like, you know, wheat thing, like, oh, I'm going to get you. And, and the angel continues to now call him, O mighty man of valor. Or more literally, O valiant warrior. The term valiant, it means like boldly courageous, brave, stout-hearted, heroic, worthy, excellent, all things that Gideon probably didn't feel as he cowered from the angel of the Lord. Continuing on to verse 13, Gideon said, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. As we mentioned before, Israel as a whole had a responsibility to remember the God who called them. But I think there is something here of the truth that each generation must wrestle in their own right with the reality of their place in God's world. There is clearly the responsibility of God's people to raise up sons and daughters who are aware of the larger story in which they are a part of. It's my responsibility as a father to tell James and Henry of how God was repeatedly faithful in my life, and I pray that that role, that plays a role in their development, um, in their development of a fearless faith, but I know that they'll have to experience it for themselves in their own life. They'll have to face the inevitable trials that this world presents them and experience God's faithfulness firsthand. Eventually, Jesus is going to look at them and say, who do you say I am? Still, there is something powerful in the truth that God has been revealing himself through the generations. God was the same God who led them out of Egypt, and now he's going to do something in the generation of Midian. Picking up in verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, well, Here's the thing, Gideon. I will be with you. And you're going to strike the Midianites as one man. 
I love how it says, go in this might of yours. <laughs> what might? The might of cowering in fear on that winepress floor. Regardless of how equipped or ill-equipped Gideon was for the job that God had for him, the reality was that in Lord, in the Lord, Gideon did have might. He had all the might that he needed. Go in that might of yours. In the Lord, Gideon could do all that God had in store for him. In the Lord, Gideon could stand up to his fear and conquer it. I love how it was Gideon who references God's faithful provision to Israel over previous, previous generations, and that is the very thing that God uses to define Gideon's might. Go in that might. Go in this might of yours. In other words, exactly, Gideon. You have the God of all creation on your side. Go and do the thing I've called you to do. And Gideon says, well, but I'm the youngest in my father's house. My clan is the weakest in my tribe. How could I save Israel? Good point, God might say. But here's the thing. I'm with you. And when God says, I'm with you, there's, a, there's, a, there's kind of a thing that keeps ringing in my head that it, it feels like God is saying, if God was going to remind me that he's with me, it's as if he's reminding me, you know, I know how your story ends. I know how this all plays out. I know how it plays out when I ask you to make the sacrificial play and you say yes in faith rather than react and run from fear. I know how it plays out. Now, the truth of the matter is, God in his redemptive love also knows how it plays out when we do react in fear and he redeems our sin and glorifies that and turns our stumbles into dance. I don't deny that that happens, but I love this idea that God is saying, take the step of faith, surrender your fear to me, and watch these incredible things that I'm going to do through you. See, if you know the rest of the story, Gideon doesn't exactly put his fear down and surrender it and trust God's strength. He asks God to go through hoops to prove who he really is, and God's patient with Gideon and obliges his wishes and until finally Gideon realizes who he's been talking to this whole time, and Gideon says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And God responds, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. First, Gideon is used to tear down an altar to Baal, and then he does lead an army against the Midianites. In fact, at one point, God tells Gideon, uh, Gideon uh, that this army of his that's like 32,000 strong, it's looking a little too healthy, and he whittles it down to just 300 dudes. And with only 300 men, God leads Gideon to victory. And you can read all about that in Judges 6 through 8. But in closing, I just want us to be thinking about this return to this concept of surrendering our fear, because what is it going to look like when God asks you to take that, that sacrificial play, to make that sacrificial play? What is it going to look like when he asks you to jump on the grenade, to, to step up and be a, a single parent, to make sure that those under your charge are taken care of before yourself? What is it going to look like when he asks you to be a part of a community that is asked to let go of a graduating senior? You see, when God asks us to make those sacrificial plays, the question is, are we going to react from a place of fear and insecurity? Or are we going to respond 
from a foundation of faith, knowing that when we take that step, it may mean pain or discomfort. It may mean me sacrificing some of the things that I have come to to love, but ultimately it's trusting that he has my well-being in mind, ultimately. That he has this story well in hand, that he is the author of this story. We're trusting him as he writes this tale, not reacting from fear in a way that tells our own story that is far less interesting. And with that, let's pray.